the royal jurisdiction began to grow slowly, including an increasing number of issues and limiting the power of local courts whose decisions could always be challenged by the concurrent royal courts. Litigants had the choice. They could submit their disputes to a local judge or they could prefer the more expensive but more equal judgment of a royal judge. The main point is that the expansion of the royal justice and the increasing number of cases royal judges had to decide brought to more formalism in the procedure. The king had to delegate justice to a class of magistrates authorized to give justice in his name. But this forced to introduce general procedural rules aimed at keeping uniformity in the decisions of different magistrates. The instrument for achieving this uniformity was a set of formulas, that means instructions, to be given to royal judge when deciding over cases. These formulas took the name of writs. At the beginning, around 1100, the willingness of the king to give justice was perceived as a grant given by the crown and not as a right of the subject who was asking for justice. Also, the nature of the writ was not strictly judicial. The intervention of the king at the beginning was aimed at settling the controversies, and sometimes the best way to do that was not to give justice, but act in the territory, granting new privileges, for example, or perform what we call today administrative actions. But after a while, the use of the writ became more and more judicial. This happened because the early writ was granted to the subject who raised a complaint in front of the king, representing to him the situation requesting his intervention. But, of course, only by his point of view. So, around the age of Henry II, in the middle of the 12th century, the procedure began allowing pretended wrongdoer to appear in court to present his version of the same fact. It created a powerful instrument for transforming the nature of the royal intervention. Being the starting point of the procedure, the writ also forces the plaintiff to frame at law his personal case. For example, my father left me a piece of land saying that a church had granted it to him, but he did not give me any document proving it. Now, the church has sent peasants to work this piece of land and I have been expelled. I cannot claim property of the land because I don't have the documents, but I can prove that my father first and now I are using and farming in this land for many decades. As a plaintiff, I will ask for a writ of novel decaising, 
because I know that I can prove the fact of having been expelled, but I can prove any property right. By choosing this writ, the plaintiff actually frames the case at law. In this way, the adoption of the writ as instrument to introduce a trial brought to a standardization of cases. When receiving a request, the royal justices had to decide if they had to hear the submitted case or not. This asked for the definition of the types of alleged facts which deserved the intervention of the royal justice. And inevitably, this brought to general definitions of general categories of cases. This is what happens when a jurisdictional power sets a number of forms of actions. By choosing your form of action, you give a legal definition of your claim. Henry Sumner Maine, a British lawyer of the 19th century, wrote, So great is the ascendancy of the law of actions in the infancy of courts of justice that substantive law has at first the look of being gradually secreted in the interstices of procedure. That means that the substantive law appears only through the settling of a permanent procedure.